0: Welcome to Talatera, a podcast about freelance educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. Who are these educators? What do they do? Join me, and let's find out together. This is your host, Tanya Marion. Today, my guest is Nicole Feltz. Nicole is a biologist and ecologist by training and has a bachelor's degree in biology and a master's degree in geography and environmental systems. Nicole is also the co founder and principal educator at Feltz Family Farmette, a suburban farm she founded with her parents just as the pandemic began to change our lives. Nicole shares how she navigated her first year in business and talks about what she needs to learn next. If you've ever thought about starting an urban farm, bringing fresh and nutritious food to your community, and serving as an educational resource, you may be interested in Nicole's story. How did Nicole position herself for success? How did she decide on which farmer's market to join? What does five-star customer service look like to her? Let's find out. Welcome, Nicole, and thank you so much for stopping by to tell us about the Feltz Family Farmettes. I want to uh, first congratulate you for starting a business during a pandemic. I think that that is wonderful. Three cheers for you. (laughs) Thank you. Um, (laughs) Your enterprise is the Feltz Family Farmette, and you mentioned that the idea for the farm developed pre-COVID, How did you position yourself for the success that you've seen this year? So, yeah, the idea started before COVID hit. It was
1: the very beginning of this year. My dad and I were hanging out and he was like, hey, Nick, I think we could probably sell some transplants. And I, totally typical of me, took that idea and ran with it. And so we placed a big seed order bigger than we normally do because we've been gardening recreationally for years and we've built some pretty solid infrastructure on their, my parents' property. And I said, all right, yeah, let's sell some transplants. And then maybe we can sell it at some farmer's markets. And then maybe I can educate people because I love that. I love science communication. And then I was like, maybe we can sell some produce too. So how I set it up for success for this season with COVID, I think we were just constantly adapting. I think we were fortunate in the fact that we had made that decision pre-COVID to decide to go public with our our farm ed, I finally call it a farmet, because that alliteration just appealed to me more than Feltz Family Garden. And it just worked out that we had already placed our seed order before COVID hit, because as you might be aware, like after COVID started to happen, people realized, "Whoa, we don't know what's going to happen. Food might be scarce. We should probably grow our own food." And a lot of places started running out of seeds, and we already had ours. So that was good. And I think that set up set us up for success. But that's not really something that your listeners could plan on. That just happens that way. And I think it was our diligence in continuing moving forward with starting that business that put us in the position to have all those stuff, all those resources ready.
0: Absolutely. And I'm a gardener myself. And I know all Lots of things ran out, out were out of stock. A whole bunch of things. While people were buying paper products, I was at the nursery buying seeds.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there were even supplies later in the year that we, later in the season, we decided to expand our plots based on demand and based on the transplants that we already had that we hadn't sold at the market. And um, some of the supplies that I wanted to use for some of the raised beds and some of the... um, It's called cattle pen or cow pen. There, we created basically archways for squash plants to grow, and a lot of that stuff wasn't available, so we had to come up with inventive solutions. So you also have to be like a creative engineer in a lot of ways. So we did have to adapt. Like we weren't just like set up for success, and then everything went perfectly. That's not how it worked for us either.
0: You mentioned that you and your family have been gardening for several years, Mm -hmm. and in earlier conversations, I. Got the impression that you have literally been doing this mostly all your life. Yeah. Yeah, gardening to some extent. That's a very much of a firmly grounded family activity with you and your family. My guests have many fond memories of nature, and they, they remember their first experiences of enjoying nature. What is your earliest experience of enjoying nature?
1: I have to be honest with you. I don't think I have like a flashbulb memory. The best way that I can answer this question is I don't really remember a time when I didn't feel close to nature in such a way that like a question like this sort of catches me off guard because I don't even really consider like my existence or my interests separate from nature. I know that when I was a kid, we grew up uh, excuse me, there's no wheat, I don't have any siblings. I grew up, I was raised, my my family and I were in like a fairly wooded area on a couple of acres, which my parents still have. And that's where the farm at is now. So I remember like playing in the leaf piles and stuff like that. And then also from a young age, I started horseback riding, which is still a passion of mine. So being out on the farms that were always really close by because my father also grew up on that land. So he's been there for his entire life. And at the time of his youth, it was a lot more of a rural area. So there's plenty of ag that was around. When I was a kid in agriculture, always interested me, that type of more rural country-ish lifestyle always captivated my attention. And I certainly have more developed perspectives now, but pretty much forever, I have felt connected with nature and a
0: part of nature. When did nature become important to you? When did you realize that this was something that you needed to advocate for?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I remember from a really young age, and I I don't remember what age this was, but it was, I, I was very young and I remember having a conversation with my great grandmother and she talked about how important the environment was. And in her perspective, how do I say this? She talked about how important the environment was. And I remember just feeling a close kinship also with that environment. And knowing, knowing that there were things that kind of needed to change. But, you know, if we think about how much things have changed in, in 20 years, you know, in the early 1990s, or excuse me, that's not 20 years ago, but in the last 20 years, things have changed a lot. And then when I was growing up in the early 90s, I remember kind of having this feeling of like, okay, you know, there's an environmental movement. I want to be a participant in that. How do I do that? I know that I want to be an activist for these things, but how? Like, what does that look like? And I think the problems were always very apparent to me then, but the gravity of those problems weren't apparent.
0: What was the first action you took or supported then? Do you remember
1: I think the best way that I can answer that is the biggest action that I took is is it dictated the course of my life. There are a lot of interests that I have. I've wanted to be an actress since I was a kid. I've always loved horseback riding, my first horseback riding instructor. When I was like, (laughs) I think I was seven, my mom picked me up from my lesson one day. This was like two or three lessons in. So two or three weeks in horseback riding, one lesson a week. My mom picks me up, and the instructor finally goes to my mother. And she says, "Excuse me, ma'am. Why does your daughter have a British accent and you don't? Like, I'm just curious." And My mother looks at me, and she's furious. She's, "What are you doing?" And I, you know, I was a kid. I wasn't trying to be deceptive. I just loved accents. I loved acting. I loved, I just loved stepping into a different kind of world. And the instructor was floored. She was like, "Wow, your accent is amazing for a child your age who does not have that example in your household." And I said, "Oh, well, I've always loved acting." And she said you should be an acting horseback rider. And I was like, no, I want to be a professional horseback rider. I want to do something for the environment. Like I can't do acting like that's a waste of time. And she's <laughs> like, well, you could be both. Unfortunately, I haven't manifested that dream yet. I, still, I guess I still can. I'm still young. But I, I certainly chose for my life to go in this direction to try and support the environment. A lot of times I fall short or I feel like I fall short. And I think that's representative of something that a lot of us suffer from, which is like imposter syndrome, right? I had that all throughout graduate school. And truth be told, I still do. But I, I chose to, to push through high school, to be involved in groups in high school with the environment, with animals rights and stuff like that. And, and in college, I immediately went for what is the clearest way that I can make an impact and study the things that I'm passionate about, animals and the environment, was that at the time. So I did biology and I said, I don't really know how this is going to look. I don't really know what a scientist does. Uh, I don't really know how I can put this into practice to help the world. But I just want to save the world. Like, I just want to save the environment everything that's in it. And at a younger age, I wasn't as focused on people in the world as a self-proclaimed adult now. (laughs) I feel it's the issues of the environment and and civil rights and people are absolutely um, inseparable. They're not one and the same, but they are absolutely related and they're inseparable. They have to be looked at as a whole working system. And that works for me because that type of holistic thinking is something that I feel like has also always been ingrained in me. So to finish answering your question, like, how did I take those steps? I think it was just the trajectory that I chose in my life. Today, I don't know exactly where that's going to go, but I try to move forward with those dreams of, of helping the world in any way that I can and helping the environment. And I think the biggest component of that is sharing that message with as many people as you can about how science is important and why. I feel like I was able to accomplish that in a small degree with the outreach that I was able to do this year during the farmer's market season. It's since ended and having people over to the farm and stuff. And I'm sure we can talk about that uh, a little bit more later.
0: What is involved in getting certified to sell fruit, vegetables, flowers, and plants at the farmer's market in your area? I
1: did not know the answer to that question when I started this journey and I had to go just be a problem solver and figure it out. That's not always easy for anybody, when you're in an unknown, that can be really startling. But my best advice to anybody is just start. And that's super cheesy. It's corny. It's cliche. I, I don't know. I just don't really have much better to say to that. But what I did do was just start. And the trouble with that is you're fumbling around in the dark. So I said, when my father, when, so I started this story a little bit in the very beginning where I talked about my dad had the idea to sell transplants. And I said, okay, cool. Yeah, I think we can do that how can we do that? Are we allowed to do that? I've never really been the type of person to do something and then apologize later. You know, that saying where are like, just, just do, I'm I'm going to butcher this, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Like just yep. do it and then ask for forgiveness later. That's, yep. just, uh, you know, you can't see my face, but this just never really worked that well for me. <laughs> I want to set myself up for success from the beginning. And so what I did was I just started looking online. So I, so I looked at the the state and the county governances or whatever, I don't even know if that's the right word, but I <laughs> I looked at the the local roles the best that I could. And to be honest with you, it was really hard to find. I had to keep digging. I, I could have, from the beginning, just tried to look on, you know, Baltimore County's, Baltimore County, Maryland's websites and been like, whoa, well, I can't find anything. Must mean that I can just do it. And listen, you know, sometimes that's fine. But like I already said, that's just that's just not something that I find very easy. So... I kept looking and I contacted people in the Department of Ag and stuff like that. And eventually I was able to tease out that you do not have to have any permits or certifications or quality control or anything like that to sell raw agricultural products. And basically that just means like fruits and vegetables, right? So as soon as I started to think about – which I didn't really entertain this idea for very long, but we thought about maybe selling some jams or something like that uh, with the products that we would grow. But we would have had to get additional certifications for that. Long term, that might be something that we can do. I think that incentivizes people and demonstrates, physically demonstrates and gives them an example for what they can do with that produce that I sell. But those things require additional permits. So... You don't have to, and I don't know if this is applicable for all the states in the United States, but in the state of Maryland, you do not have to have a permit or anything like that to sell raw agricultural products. For my own sense of being an honorable person and producing good quality stuff, you know, when... We all became aware that, like, the entire farmers market season was going to be under COVID restrictions. I implemented my own COVID policy that also fell under the COVID policy of the farmers market organization, but that was separate from the legality of what it took to produce those products.
0: How did you choose the farmers market that you chose? That's a great question. So I
1: ended up contacting someone at the Maryland Farmers Market Association. I contacted someone there and I said, hey, my family and I have been growing veggies for a while and I'm thinking about selling some plants and vegetables and stuff like that. And I kind of want to do it at a farmer's market because I want to interact with my customers. And she was really helpful. And she told me a little bit about, I had a phone call with her and we corresponded via email. And, uh, and she told me about the different farmers markets in the area, local to our farmette, that she thought may have vacancies for the 2020 season, and those that would be well served by what we were providing. So they had a, they potentially had a gap for what we were able to provide, right? So that information was really advantageous, and I, I can't, I cannot emphasize this enough to any listener. I don't mean to yell. I can't emphasize this enough. Trying to network and communicate and contact any person that you can. Not just people who are like going to benefit you. What can you offer them as well? And even if that what you're offering them is just being a kind person and listening to them in their journey is irreplaceable. It's immense, the benefits that you can both provide and receive from those types of interactions. I absolutely would not have found the overly farmer's market, which is where we ended up stationing ourselves for the majority of the 2020 season and the only market that we ended up doing. Because we're we're quite small if I had not spoken with that person. And I don't know if this is a part of your question, but the way that we ended up coming to, or the way that I ended up choosing Overly Farms Market, because I, I really did chief all of these operations. My father was my main business partner and my mother, and again, I'm an only child, so it's just, a th- it was just three of us. My mother participated in some growing and some planning and, and stuff like that. She certainly participated in quite a bit. She did a little bit of social media stuff. Uh, and then my father did a lot of like hands-on construction type work, facilitating the operations of the machinery and stuff like that and managing the plants when I wasn't on site because I don't live there. But my job a lot was planning all of this and putting it together and going to the markets and, and being the PR person and all that kind of stuff. So the factors that I thought about in choosing the overlay farmers market, which again is the sole market that we ended up going with, was the location, the price to join, the length of the season, the frequency of the markets. I think I already said this, but the gaps that they had and that we were able to fill. And the clincher really was that the people at this market were so kind. They were extremely welcoming, very friendly, wonderful people. And the community yeah. matters. The community absolutely matters when you're doing any sort of business, but especially as an establishing business. Having people who are patient with you when you're new is crucial.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very wise words that you've shared. How Thank you. <laughs> about having... About networking and thinking about what you can provide others, how you can help others as they are helping you. In short, you know, I'm hearing, you know, how can you pay forward being seen and heard the way that you are being seen and heard? Yeah, absolutely. By those helping you. Yeah. Yeah. How do you plan your crops for the year? So there's a
1: software that we ended up purchasing pretty cheap. It's an online software, so you don't have to download it or anything like that. So it was really easy for us to be able to access. Like I could work on it at home and do some planning on my computer, and then I could go to the farm and use the laptop at my parents' house that I would take with me to farmer's markets and stuff like that to log sales and to log all that kind of stuff. Now, the software is growveg.com. It's in collaboration with a couple of different seed companies, I believe. And they also have a YouTube channel. It was a big, maybe I should say facilitator or something. It was a big helper in aiding us on deciding where our crops were going to go, when they were going to go there, and why. Other resources came in the form of some old books that I've had lying around, gardening books that I've been using for years that have been passed on to me through other people. Definitely knowledge of The soil composition, what plants had been there the year before, what the surrounding plants were, what any potential pest problems were the year before, anything like that. And then underlying those decisions, or maybe I should say overarching, either way, the the bigger picture was tied into what I said a minute ago about like, how can I give this person something when they're giving me something? How can I aid the soil in in its job as a truly living community, right? And although I didn't study agriculture in school, and neither my bachelor's or my master's, but I did study a lot of ecology, so the study of the organisms and their environment together. And I use that type of thinking when designing where our plants were going to go and why and the types of varieties that we had, and the methods that we used to cultivate those plants. In addition, I I don't think I've mentioned this so far, I haven't even used this word, but one of the initiatives that I decided to take this season that I hadn't really pressed as much in previous gardening seasons was taking a stronger focus on truly restorative agriculture and so what I mean by that is instead of using the frame of thinking, how much yield can I get out of this piece of area that's going to give me a certain amount of profit, right? I was thinking, how can I enrich the soil to be the healthiest it can be so that I don't have to use even any sort of pesticide? And if we ended up having to, it was exclusively going to be organic. I refuse to use any conventional products or procedures on the land. So that really, that type of perspective and that commitment to the values that I had created some challenges for sure, but they were challenges that I was willing to endure. And really, I don't even think that's the right word, not endure, but just be happy to be there with, like, it wasn't in my interest to just use the land for what it could provide and just like scoff at it and call it day. I wanted to make sure that the flowers that we were planting, and that's one of the initiatives I did this year, was planting a lot of different flower gardens, rain gardens, did some restoration around the urban stream in my parents' yard, um, in order to truly make the best sort of ecological system for those plants to be grown on.
0: Okay, so, you've, so you gave yourself... Two constraints, no pesticides, and only restorative practices. What have you learned during
1: this year? I have learned a lot. I can't overstate that. I've learned so much. Even just the amount that I learned from presenting at the first farmer's market to the third farmer's market my behavior was completely different, and I'd be happy to answer any like logistical questions like that, which maybe seems like a little bit of a separate topic, so we can talk about that in a few minutes. But in terms of what I learned broadly in growing these plants, planning your space is really important, right? We did end up expanding into a second plot, and that construction with limited workforce, me and my father when we both have our own individual health restrictions for what amount of work and what level of work we can do for any duration of time, the infrastructure that we ended up having to build took a lot of time. And so planning well is really important. But then I think the component that I learned about probably the most is just like, there's only so much that you can plan for. And I think having that level of non-judgmentalness and empathy with yourself in recognizing like, hey, maybe I didn't really realize that this was going to take this amount of time. And there's a pretty valid reason why I didn't realize that it was going to take this amount of time. Guess what? Because I've never done it before. And I don't know anybody who's done it before. The amazing thing with the world The way that it is and how it's so connected is that even if we don't personally know someone who's done something before, we can probably figure out a way to get their message, whether it's through YouTube, which I don't think I've mentioned this at this point, but my father and I utilize a lot. we both watched YouTube a lot during our lunch breaks. We'd come in from working out on the Farmette and we'd make lunch using some of the ingredients that may have already been coming to term in the garden. And then we'd sit down and we'd watch a bunch of YouTube about like how to garden and stuff like that. The important caveat that I'll I'll insert there is just make sure that you're getting information from really reputable sources and, and ask yourself, you know, why are they reputable? How are they reputable? Uh, and then also ensure that those sources are participating in the same values that they are. And if they're not, um, ask yourself, you know, why that is. Um, if they have a different value than you, is this worth entertaining? Or is this something that I've already explored and I know I don't want to, to go into? An example of that would be, you know, if we ended up coming across a video which algorithms the way that they are we never really did Um, but if we ended up coming across the video that you know was sharing more conventional practices that I felt like throughout my training of like um so I did receive, you know, formal education in the sciences, like we've already talked about. And I did receive a lot of the, you know, backbone, you know, piece of information that informed my decisions for how to garden and why. Uh, but a lot of the information that I learned was self-taught, truly. You know, I've watched a lot of webinars. I participated in workshops. I've gone to conferences with institutions like Rodale Institute and these people with Veg and stuff like that, uh, among others. So you know it's really important to like evaluate those sources and and make sure that you know they're in alignment with your values. If they're not in line with your values, you know, ask yourself why. Uh, and if I've already established that you know some of that information, like not using pesticides, is a value of mine, and I know that, and I know that's demonstrated results that I'm looking for, which are restoring the environment, creating a more like creating an ac- actual like ecological system. I wanted to f- facilitate nature's own course of having a truly functional feedback loop and an ecosystem on that property. When we start to make things a little bit too focused on one component or another, if we focus too much on how much product we can get out of a certain amount of land or something else, as the example I was using earlier, we lose sight of the benefits and the necessity of other components of that system. Yeah, maybe I would have wanted to use a couple more plots worth of growing let's say green beans or something or cucumbers or some good seller at the farmers market something that would create a good profit margin but if i did that then it would invite more pests to come in and then i'd have to use a pesticide and that and it's creating a loop it is a feedback loop right and it's a positive feedback loop, but it's going in the wrong direction. And it's going the direction that it keeps being more and more reliant on this intervention. I didn't want that. It's not that I'm lazy. Like, I want to be participating in this system. But I want to be participating in the system in a way that it's not spiraling out of control. I wanted to participate in the system that facilitates as much biodiversity as possible in that area.
0: You have a background in stream restoration in environmental systems and you mentioned that there was a stream on the farm's property. How have you applied your studies to your practices on the farm?
1: So I think I've been touching on this a little bit here and there as we've talked, mm-hmm. but to come full circle with it. So yes, there is an urban stream on the property. A lot of my parents' land, which is a little over two acres, a little over two and a half acres, something like that. A lot of it's wooded. <laughs> I love trees. (laughs) I don't want them to cut down the trees. (laughs) I also like to see a lot of homeowners switch their practices from having this copious amount of just barren and low richness, low diversity lawn into either one of of the following, really, I should say, Uh, a rain garden, a flower garden, a vegetable plot, something of the kind, right? And so, when I took a look at the urban stream and my father raised his concerns to me, Hey Nick, it's really getting, it's getting, it's getting eroded. The erosion's getting worse and worse. Like I said earlier, he has lived on this parcel of land for his entire life. And I'm in my mid twenties. He's in his mid fifties. So, you know, he, he really has seen what's happened. And I think that my graduate studies enabled me to, It opened my eyes to how important it is to take the knowledge of the existing peoples. And so it wasn't just like I I heard, oh, well, there's a little bit of erosion. Well, I don't have the data for that. No, you have to incorporate both, right? So I sat there and I said, okay, I'm hearing this. I've also kind of witnessed this throughout my 20 years or so living on this property. Let's see what we can do. And so I had gone to a conference earlier this year called the um, uh, Anne Arundel County Watershed Stewards Academy. Yeah. Um, And I just tried to be, not not try, because in my natural state, (laughs) I am (laughs) a very friendly and fairly outgoing person. So at this conference, I just tried to meet as many people as I could with as much genuine compassion as possible and interest in hearing their work. And I stumbled across a person from Maryland DNR. Him and I have since stayed in touch. And he was immensely helpful in getting us hooked up with some of the county incentive programs for replanting Maryland, replanting streams in Maryland, stuff like that. And
0: Um, can I, uh, Maryland DNR, that's Department of Natural Resources for listeners who don't. Okay.
1: Yes. Yeah. Sorry (laughs) about that. Yes. Thank you. So yeah. So he helped us with that and it just got us connected with so many more people. And I think that If there's one thing that I can emphasize again, and I think I sort of said this earlier, but I'm going to emphasize it again because it was just so crucial for like my understanding the last couple of years and especially this year and learning how to start a business and like what to do with that. Connectivity is so important. And again, like it's not about just looking at somebody and going, what can they do for me right now? It's how can I be as present as possible with this person and listen to them and give them the time just to listen to their story? And that's all that matters in that moment, right? Later on, if you were really present and listening to them, you might remember, oh, hey, that person does that. And I bet you, because now we have this great repertoire, because, hey, I was just a compassionate person listening to them. Everybody just wants to be listened to. Hey, maybe they could help me with this. Not, oh, they've got to help me or whatever, but just maybe they could. And asking, generally speaking, is harmless, (laughs) always a good opportunity to ask or almost always a good opportunity to ask. So a lot of what we did was we took um, bare root seedlings and we planted them around the banks of the stream in order to try and have a little bit of a better riparian buffer is what that's called. So basically like that area that's immediately surrounding the stream is going to slow down the amount of erosion that happens in that stream bank or excuse me, in that stream bed by how much vegetation is along that stream bank, right? And fortunately, like our wooded area on the property isn't suffering too much. There's not a lot of invasive species. It's mostly native. Uh, We've done what we could to restore it slowly over time. Uh, You know, an important component that I kept in mind was, hey, this is not going to happen overnight, and that's totally okay. This is kind of a long-term thing, and that's fine, It's technically like an urban stream because there's not a regular flow of water there anymore. My father says that there used to be when he was a small child. Water flow patterns change. I'm not a hydrologist, so I don't pretend to be a professional in that area. But I do have professional training on, you know, analyzing the quality of the habitat and the riparian zone and why. So basically, we just took those bare root seedlings from a few different native species of trees and shrubs and planted them in professionally determined locations around the stream that was on our property.
0: Yeah, I know it's it's long term, it takes a while, everything, but have you seen any benefits from what you've done during your first year? And what do you expect to come from this moving forward?
1: Absolutely. I feel like I have a, a couple of different answers and a couple of long answers for that. So, short term and long term, with the stream, quote, restoration, mm-hmm. and I just use that term loosely because it's a very urban stream. It's on our own mm-hmm. private property. And I do feel like there is potentially more that we could do but with our resources and with the timetable we have. We did what we could. The short term results have been that we were able to move around some of the matter that had gotten into the stream bed and blocked some of the flow um so we just kind of moved that around to to clean up part of it but but still keep in mind that a stream should be messy a stream should and this i learned even more about actually in a talk that i saw Virtually, of course, um, a little bit more recently. So I haven't put all of this into practice yet on the property, but ensuring that the stream is play messy enough. And what I mean by that is, you know, do you do you see some do you see some logs that are like hanging into the stream bed, stuff like that, you know? And I can't give anybody like specific advice right now on what that should really look like for a stream, but short term, like we've seen the flow pattern change a little bit. Uh, we can't control how fast the flow comes in. That is a result of a lot of suburban development in the area that sincerely did not exist to the significance that it does now. Back when my father was born and first started living on that property, right, the development in the area was very different. I think we can all, you know, recognize that to be the truth, no matter where you are, in whatever suburbia or urban area you are in. And then the long-term impacts. I hope we're just going to keep con- continuing to see those trees and shrubs grow and monitoring them and. When they get eaten by the deer, uh, we have to go in and replace them or just give them temporary shelter, like tree tubes and stuff like that, pretty standard practice. And so that's answering your question about short-term, long-term for the stream. I can also answer that question for the farm itself. Do you want me to do (laughs) that
0: too? Yes, yeah, please. So
1: short-term for the farm itself this year was just, just drastically different in terms of the product that we ended up getting, the volume, the longevity of the crops than we have in previous years. I think that is a direct result, although I didn't document all of this and a lot of that, excuse me, some of that anyway, is a little bit more qualitative than it is quantitative. But roughly, in a slightly less scientific way, I feel like I can come to the conclusion that our production and the success of it and what I define as success is did we have a lot of pests? Did we have to mediate that a lot with any sort of intervention, whether it's like covering the crops or spraying them with an organic pesticide or product and how much how much did the plant produce how healthy was the plant and that could even go into more criteria, but that I won't do right now. How long did the plant last? Was it within its regular season? Did I feel like it died early and why? How many pollinators did I feel like we saw on property? How many different species of pollinators did we see on property? And again, I didn't collect specific quantitative data for that. I could have, maybe I will next season. Maybe that's something that I could potentially get a grant for through another organization. I'm not sure. That's something that I'm going to look into in a very like, well, I have no clue. I guess I'll just find out kind of way, the same way that I started to look into Can we sell our produce and what do we need to do that? I have no idea. Guess we'll find out that, you know, we're just going to have to keep doing it. That's how you learn. So the short term this season, I feel like we've seen a lot of improvements. And I, for one, have just been absolutely thrilled and genuinely overwhelmed in a good way every single time that I go to the farm at with how many bees i see, how many butterflies i see and just the things that i've learned. And long term, i feel like all those things are going to continue for sure and we're just going to keep finding better ways for how to manage our specific land. And I'll and I'll add in here that I don't think i've said this yet, you know, we we also definitely want to participate in even more restorative practices, right? So it was definitely my intention to do the best that we could. So a few things that we did were set up a a water retention system. Uh, We now divert 75%, and this is just a rough number, but out of – three downspouts off of our house, two of which are on the lower side. So they're actually receiving more water anyway than that third downspout is. So probably more than 75%, we'll just say roughly 75% of the water off of our roof is immediately transported into industrial, like, water retention, square plastic containers. They're very large. I think they're about 300 gallons. Is that right? 300? That doesn't sound like very much. I'll have to ask my dad. Okay, you don't know everything, right? He chiefed that. Like he, Him and my mother, they both did the research and they contacted someone who was selling those. And we did a procedure to clean them from what they had been used for before. And then we started using them to to water the crops. And I did some research on that as well. And we felt that was safe and that was a good decision to do. And uh, And it, it uses that rainwater. So we were much less reliant on the well that my parents have on that property, which made my father feel a time better, and me as well, because I don't want to deplete that groundwater system. So that's just one example of one of the practices that we instituted only this year, and we haven't haven't, uh, perfected it yet. What I hope to see, a development that I hope to see in the future on our property is taking that water system one step farther and making it even more efficient and efficient use of the resources, because being efficient and wise with that resource use is also really important to me, right? And I feel like the listener can probably get that idea at this point about like me and and how I've designed this business, but I hope to see an irrigation system truthfully. And that's I'm not an engineer. I, I'm not an engineer by training, but sometimes you've got to do stuff that kind of gets you out of the box. And if one thing that I can say about being your own business owner is that's it like you've got to be willing and not just willing but you've got to be excited to try those new things that are not in your field of expertise there's a reason why everybody in the world doesn't just start their own business and it's because you have to jump out of that silo and so i'm excited to learn what it takes to put in that irrigation system and the first place i'm going to go youtube
0: (laughs) yes please sponsor me (laughs) 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 Yes. Okay. so the majority of people I've interviewed so far for my project and these people I've had conversation with in general come to what they do now through some avenue of education. So that is they what they do now is informed by experiences that they might have had in a formal classroom, maybe working at a zoo or a nature center or a museum. Whatever they did before, it is not too far removed from what they're doing now. You are the first person to talk about their approach to customer service. You've had many opportunities to develop your approach to customer service. Can you talk about how you learned to think about customer service and share with us what five-star customer service looks like to you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited to talk about this. This is something that customer service is something that I feel like I started not even really knowing like what that meant when I was probably about 13 years old. I started teaching horseback riding lessons at that age. And so I was interacting directly with my client and literally real time having to teach them how to go through a process of managing themselves, their balance, their mental state, and all of those things for another live animal that they were riding. That's complicated. (laughs) Um, So effective communication is really important. So customer service for me started at about age 13. Then I got you know, the very typical job of a late teen, early college person working in a pizza shop, being a customer service person. I was a cashier. I think one of the things that helped me stand out in customer service in all of my jobs was My passion for continuing to improve. So no one sat me down at that job at the pizza shop and said, hey, this is what good customer service looks like. To be honest with you, a lot of the times I saw what bad customer service looked like and I went, whoa, can that be done better? Why do I think it's important that be done better? And how could I do that better? I did receive professional training in a more structured way, I should say, from Johns Hopkins Hospital when I worked there as a clinical customer service representative from 2015 to 2016. That was really engaging and definitely continued to lay the foundation or build that really strong foundation for what I continued to do after that, which was more customer service stuff as I became like a dog walker and house sitter. And I have a very diverse and varied background. It's, it's impossible to write my my resume. It's what I was doing earlier. I just, I can't even begin to try It's who am I and why have I done all the things that I've done? I don't know. So customer service to me looks like what I started to say earlier, being present with whoever you're giving that service to. And I want to add this part to it. It's not always the customer or who the customer is often changes. It's very dynamic. So as an example, when I worked at Johns Hopkins Hospital, a lot of the customer service that I had to perform were not to like paying. They weren't the patrons of the hospital. And a lot of times I didn't even interact with the patients themselves. I worked in a surgical prep and recovery unit. I had to perform customer service with the staff. So with people who are my equals, people who are my coworkers, oh, so I feel like I, in it again. This was inadvertent. I just I, I see the past and how it's come together. This is a lot of what we do when we as humans create meaning out of. Well, the world, for what it is. I I did a lot of my bachelor studies and um, independent work in psychology and sociology. And I feel like that understanding of behavior and then also my passion for behavior which started with my passion for animal behavior when I was a kid with horses and dogs and stuff like that. That gave me a good opportunity to understand how to interact with those people and the value The values that I took to to making those interactions and that enabled me to develop my own mental kind of schema of what five-star customer service looks like is being present, being mindful, being compassionate, being kind. A lot of those words are kind of synonyms to each other or some of them are to each other. But overall, a five-star customer service means what would I do – to make the customer not even think about whether they're getting good customer service or not. It's just a reflexive answer from them that, yes, I received exemplary customer service. And a lot of times that means going what people say above and beyond. I tend not to use that phrase because I feel like that kind of gives this interpretation that what I'm providing is 110% and what other people are providing a hundred and it's good enough. I I fully think that like I'm providing a hundred percent effort and maybe other times, other businesses or other people aren't. And hey, listen, I'm human. Like maybe sometimes I am not either. And I think that ability to self-evaluate and to accept feedback, whether it's positive or negative, is is crucial. Absolutely. Uh, we need to be constantly self-evaluating and recognizing when we may have just been not having a great day and, and needed some sort of feedback from a customer. Sometimes we even have to like actively ask for that feedback, which is really necessary. So I, I hope that answers your question about five-star customer service. It's a little bit of an enigma. It's a little bit of a, a really nebulous kind of thing to, to, to pin down. But I guess I should get better at that. That's where science communication,
0: I can, I can improve. <laughs> <laughs> yes. How, what type of educational opportunities or services do you provide for your customers? You engage with them a lot at the farmer's market. How do you help them after they've walked away? Or do you help them after they've walked away from your booth? Yeah.
1: So in terms of like, I just want to say this real quick, my education background was also like, um, you know, it was horseback riding instruction. And I did volunteer for a bit at a natural history museum. And forest, an urban forest in Atlanta, Georgia called Fernbank. And that was, that was a really engaging, that was a really engaging time. I'm very appreciative for that opportunity. And those types of experiences led me to just having this insatiable desire for wanting to continue that connection with my customer. It was never really in my interest and I just didn't really have to think about it. I didn't want to just sell an item to someone and think, okay, great. Like how much money can I make? It's never been an, inf- it's never been an informant for how I've designed the format first of all right and i think we've established that at this point throughout the podcast episode and it certainly wasn't what wasn't really a huge factor in in what i could do at the market you know i'm not a business person by training so if you ask me about finance stuff which i know we haven't talked about that at all yet and and everything but if listeners are curious and wondering which is totally valid that's not my field of expertise and we kind of have to still see if this is going to be profitable right that's a part of a business plan that i need to get a little bit better at for 2021 but in terms of what i do with my customers like when they come to the booth and when they're not at the booth and after the booth, when they've already purchased a, a product and they're taking it home. I do provide consultation services. That was a really organic process. I had a customer who came to me and he said, hey, I have a little plot of land right here just a few minutes away. Uh, would you be willing to come and take a look at my property? I really need a professional opinion on where to plant these plants and you know why it would be best to plant them there, and and how they need to go together, and all that kind of stuff. And so I did, and I thought, wow, this is exactly what I want to do. You know, I should have thought of this. Whoops. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and I, you know, I had had visitors to the farmette before, so we had that type of customer base coming to the farmette, and I would give them kind of a, a spiel of whatever whatever they needed for me, and it was never the same for any individual customer. It was always tailored to the customer, and that type of practice came from horseback riding instruction. It's totally not applicable for horseback riding instruction to go from an 11 o'clock lesson to a 12 o'clock lesson. You could have two totally different students or groups of students between those hours. You absolutely cannot approach the day and say every single lesson or tier of rider is going to have this particular process today? No way, man. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way for a lot of the stuff that I do, which is why a lot of the stuff that I that I do and, and what I have worked and what I describe is, is an enigma. It's very difficult because that's just the way that my brain has always worked, even though I'm a scientist, even though I'm very logic minded. So this customer came to me and I gave that sort of consultation service. And that was really engaging for me because I could really stay in touch with the customer and figure out if they're plant was starting to get sick, or if they had a certain type of soil, like what type of plant to offer them for their specific area. And going off of what I was saying a minute ago with like, you have to tailor the lesson to the student, you always have to meet someone where they're at. And that was both from the genuine experience, like firsthand experience that I got in teaching horseback riding lessons and just fumbling my way through that process of learning how to teach someone, but also in the things that I've studied on my own time and what I learned in psychology. There was one more thing that I wanted to say, and this is not quite about teaching a customer necessarily, but when COVID first hit and we were already producing, here's the timeline, right? So we made the decision literally in January to go public and then COVID started to hit. And At least I became aware of it with my institution, with my university in like the end of February. And then things really started to change for the public, I think around March in that time frame when lockdown started to happen, I recognized in reviewing the law, right? Because I wanted to make sure, you know, hey, am I allowed to be traveling in order to continue to function with this business? Again, I don't live on my parents' property. The answer was yes, like I was allowed to do that. Okay, great. Hey, people aren't really interested to go out. And what what are they looking for right now? They're looking for no contact. They're looking for a clean system. So I instituted through the local social medias like Nextdoor, which is a social networking app for neighbors. So I, I did next door and Facebook, and I think a little bit of Craigslist. And we advertised for selling transplants. If you bought, you know, a certain number of them, we'd give you a certain deal on them. And I offered free delivery for a certain radius around, you know, where my parents were. Wildly successful. We received more orders than I could fulfill in the first hour and a half. It was amazing. And that continued for the next couple of weeks until we started taking transplants to the market. And then we started to run out of stock.
0: Oh, that's fantastic.
1: Yeah. So you have to like know what the market is and you have to be perceiving what's going on around in order to adjust as necessary. So being in tune with those types of things is really important. Mm -hmm. What would you as a customer want is what I asked myself.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. Your experience with social media, you have a love-hate relationship with it. Do you have your favorites platform or has one worked out better for you than the others? So I think social media is
1: a a really great way for us to connect with our customers. It's definitely really good for real time and for fast communication. I think that, you know, I had to recognize which ones would be most effective for the type of business that we had. So Instagram was immediately pretty... Relevant because it's based on images, and if I could take good quality images of the products that we were growing or the way that we were growing, the processes that we were using, stuff like that, then that would be a pretty quick and effective way to communicate those things. And I would say it was pretty successful. We do have an Instagram. It's just at Feltz Family Farmette. So Instagram is a little bit more for without being super biased or maybe the younger crowd. And Facebook was definitely more relevant to, I should say, the older crowd. And then Facebook also has stuff like groups and stuff. Groups can have our benefits and social media can have its benefits. And in recognizing that the farmer's market has its own page and its own group for just the vendors. And from its page, it shares that information about the vendors and what they're selling to the customers. So this was something that I didn't perfect this season, that I definitely see room for improvement on my end. If I was better able to predict what crops were going to be ready when, which, hey, I wasn't really perfect at that because this was our first season growing for the public. And in past seasons of gardening, we either would lose crops like before we could, you know, always harvest all of them because of pests and and not doing the practices that I've instituted this year, uh, or I just wasn't really concerned with exactly when they were going to produce because I was just like, we're here, you know, and when it's ready, I'll just eat it. Like that kind of thing. But with the Facebook groups, I could post in advance, even if it was just a few days, what products we would have available. And if anyone wanted to pre-order anything, we could make that happen. A lot of the times our business was so small and our amount of produce and product was so small that wasn't as relevant to us. But I definitely had a lot of correspondence with existing customers over social media. For example, there was a customer who was having some trouble with one of her plants. It was starting to get sick. It had broken from the weather, something like that. And I helped her try to go through a few steps of evaluation or of of evaluating the illness or the damage to the plant and then taking those steps. What can we do about that? And a part of that customer service was recognizing like, I want to maintain these customers. And so, you know, I offered an incentive of if your plant dies, first of all, come to me for consultation and education before it gets to that point. But if it does, I can try to help you out by offering you a discount on a future purchase of a plant um, if it's still in season. And if it's not, we could talk about something else, like that kind of thing. I wanted to stay engaged with the customer. And Instagram, actually, we were recently contacted by an organization that is producing a new product for hanging fruits and vegetables when they're really heavy off the plant. So it looks like we're going to be trialing that next year. So just staying active on social media and using the same philosophy that I talked about earlier, staying present on social media. Well, Nicole, how do you do that? Well, when you you go on somebody else's page and you're trying to grow your social media following, a lot of the ways that you do that is you try to search relevant hashtags that you also use. You know, this is Maybe more specific to Instagram is what I'm talking about right now. You search those specific hashtags and then you find maybe other local businesses or maybe places that aren't local, other farmers, other growers, stuff like that, that you can kind of develop some sort of repertoire with. And if you post genuine comments, right, genuine likes, genuine follows, not follow for follow, not any of this very shallow nonsense, Because I'm not going on social media to try to get 10,000 followers. That's not the goal. I'm trying to connect with people who find my message relevant to them in some way or another. And if I do that, then a lot of the times those things end up coming your way. So we posted pretty good quality photos. I tried to post informative captions. Sometimes I was able to take the time to do some of that research. So you'll notice if you check out our Instagram again, at Feltz Family Format. and it's also translated immediately to the Facebook. So that's it's the same handle on Facebook for our page. I did have some posts where I would describe the benefits of tomatoes and why, and I would post the sources in the, and the on Instagram captions. You can't exactly link stuff, but you can post the web address. So I would give all that information so that my customers could continue learning about these plants and why they're so important to us and why it's important to buy produce from those types of sources like me or to grow it yourself by you know using a plant that i've helped you grow or get an access with or something like that instead of buying from the farm excuse me instead of buying from the supermarket a product that is non-organic the nutrient profile and the composition of those plants that are grown in more regenerative and restorative ways that are organic have a much higher nutrient Profile, They have a greater quality nutrient profile.
0: From where I sit, you are successful as a science communicator. the way you use social media, the way you interact with your customers in person, how you talk about the farm, how you've talked about restoration and your practices here in this podcast, you communicate these principles and your what you're doing very clearly. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, you absolutely do. Uh, What's next for you?
1: That's a complicated one. I I definitely want to, I want to have a nonprofit one day, whether I have my own or whether I work on one, it doesn't really matter. But I need to find out what the best platform is to share science in the most effective way to the broadest audience. Yeah. I, I, I have a lot of like, big dreams for how, you know, this, and, and I know that I've been saying restorative a lot. And and I also mean regenerative agriculture. I don't think I used that term earlier, but I want to emphasize that now and how it was, you know, using a relatively applicable term, but the more accurate term I suppose at this point is regenerative. Either way, they're both relevant. I'm excited to keep participating in, in that in one way or another, whether it's continuing our very small format if I continue that, I'm going to need to find a way to optimize and make more efficient some of the processes that we definitely spent a lot of time on this year. I think that's going to be pretty easy off the start because like I was saying earlier, a lot of the time that we ended up spending in the middle of the season was building this infrastructure. So finding a way to like streamline that and to utilize technology in the most helpful way so that I don't have to have 20 of me. I can have one of me and still be able to do something else like science communication or something like that full time. So I do hope that this is going to continue to be a business for me. With that said, I envision this more of a part time thing with my professional life continuing to be the nebulous existence that it is where I do like a bunch of different things, whether it's science communication or stream restoration or environmental sampling for further research for the government, whatever I can do. I think in listening to myself throughout this conversation and thinking about this pretty much like every single day, um, like what am I going to do and where is it going to go from here? Not just with the format, but also with like my life as an independent science educator. I recognize that I've always wanted to act, right? I I said that earlier when I was sharing my story. And I think it's really important to like accept and recognize those things about ourselves. And so I hope that I can put that to good use. I hope that I can put that into practice someday. I'm not talking about going and acting in like a big box office movie or anything like that, really. But being a science communicator and educator and using comedy and humor and self-reflection and stuff like that is something that I'm really passionate about what that looks like for the future, I have no clue. I hope that I continue to, to gain some sort of clarity every day. I definitely don't really ever see a job position out there that encompasses all of the things that I wanna do. And I think that the answer that I've come to in seeing that evidence, that there isn't one clear job, is that maybe I just have to kind of design it myself. And I think that type of attitude is something that has enabled me to jump in, you know, feet first with this type of business that I've created with Feltz Family Farmette.
0: Well, when you design it, I invite you to come back and tell us what you designed. And... I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's successful enough that it's warranted. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Nicole, so much for telling us about the farm and for teaching us about the stream restoration and giving us some very valuable insights about networking and customer service and, uh, and regenerative agriculture <laughs> and regenerative agriculture as well. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Learn more about Nicole and the Feltz family Farmette in the show notes for this episode. Here, you will also find links to additional resources mentioned during our conversation. Talaterra is a podcast for and about independent educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and colleagues. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Tanya Marion.